So tonight, if you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn to Romans chapter 15, or if you have your copy of an iPhone or Android phone, open your Bible app to Romans 15. Probably not the place you expected us to be on Christmas Eve. And all of us are quite familiar with the story around Christmas. We know of the wise men, the magi, the shepherds. We know of the virgin birth, no room at the end, and so on and so on. All of those biblical storylines are certainly worthy of our study and consideration. But how often do we consider the impact of this birth and the reason for it? You see, the story of Christmas isn't only contained in the Gospels or in the prophecies leading up to the Gospels. The story of Christmas is from Genesis through Revelation. Either the actual narrative, the actual account of what took place, or the repercussions and the beautiful benefits that come to us on account of the Christmas story as we find all throughout Scripture. We know the old adage that Jesus is the reason for the season, but we must not lose sight of the reason why Jesus came. As Steve Lawson once said, Jesus did not come to create a holiday. There was a profound purpose in the birth of this child because this is not any regular child. We ought to all ask along with the old song, what child is this? John tells us in the opening of his gospel, you know this quite well, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But let's not forget about verse 14 that tells us, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the child in the manger. John is speaking of a very important Christian doctrine that is at the heart of the Christmas story, and that is the incarnation. When the Word who was with God and was God became flesh and dwelt among us. Think about that. God came in the flesh. This is not to be glossed over, or because it's Friday night, let's not really apply our minds to this. This is God in the flesh. The incarnation is not merely a sweet subject for a Christmas carol. The incarnation is not merely an important subject of theological study. It is so much more than that. And while we could spend a lifetime thinking about and reflecting upon and studying all of the implications and the intricacies of the Incarnation. Tonight, our focus will be on four lessons in the Incarnation. So to do so, our time this evening will be here in the 15th chapter of Romans. I hope that you will see with me that the Incarnation displays Christ's humility, God's faithfulness, God's mercy, and that the people of God have hope. I hope you're there. Romans chapter 15, verses 8 through 13. This is the word of the living God. For I tell you that Christ became 
a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we glorify you. We thank you for this opportunity to come together tonight on Christmas Eve and celebrate and think about the greatest gift that you have ever given, that anyone has ever given, your Son, that God came in the flesh. I pray that tonight you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. I pray that the soil of our heart would be fertile ground to receive your word tonight. And may Christ be glorified in the preaching and proclamation of his word. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's look at the incarnation displaying Christ's humility. He says, for I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised. What stunning words that ought to leap off of the page. Christ became a servant in one sense, it's difficult to speak of God as becoming anything at all. Theologians speak of the immutability of God. And by that, they mean that God does not change. He doesn't alter. He doesn't have any shadow or shifting of change in him. Or another way of saying it is that he's never becoming more or less of anything. He is absolutely perfect. In all of the fullness of his being and all of his attributes are absolutely perfect. And that's why even God's attributes are referred to as the perfections of God. Even when God revealed his holy name to Moses, what did he say? He said that his name is I am. He is. God does not become, or at least so we thought, then we come across a text like this in Scripture that says that Christ became. How absolutely perplexing that is. Herein lies the mystery of the incarnation. The God who is absolutely perfect and immutable, who is never becoming, became. By this we do not mean that he changed in his being, but that he took on the likeness of man. This is what we celebrate on Christmas after all, isn't it? That God has taken on flesh. The God who never changes became something. As has been said in the past, the infinite took on the finite. The immortal God took on the image of mortal man. The perfect and holy God came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Scripture says of Jesus that all things were made by him, for him, and through him, yet the creator took on the form of the created. What an astonishing reality this is. And that 
through the miraculous virgin birth. The truths that surround the Christmas holiday are many and they are profound. He took on this flesh that he might become a servant to the circumcised. Now I will confess, it would be difficult to attribute that sort of language to Christ if it had not been written down for us in the Bible. After all, the scriptures tell us that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that same Jesus became a servant. So you mean to tell me that the king of the universe became a servant? It's the word diakonos, the same word that he that is also translated as deacon. Now let us be reminded that Jesus said this of himself first, didn't he? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he uses another similar word. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What humility our Savior displayed in coming to serve. Being God in the flesh, surely he could have come and given orders and made demands and taken over the world. Yet he came as a servant. Paul writes that he was a servant to the circumcised. And this is just another way of speaking of the Jewish people as a whole. As you know, Jesus' earthly ministry was focused on the Jewish people. He even says in Matthew 15 that he was sent only for the lost sheep of Israel. Even remember that the Gentiles, they were not the ones who were eagerly anticipating a Messiah. As we sung a bit ago, it was the Israelites who were saying, O come, O come, Emmanuel. It was not the Gentiles. When Christ was born, the wise men who had come from the east to Jerusalem, what were they asking? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Not king of the world, not even king of the Gentiles, but king of the Jews Jesus was born a Jew and born to be a servant to the Jewish people. His earthly ministry was centered around calling the lost sheep of Israel to repentance. Now, Christ knew that part of the plan in his coming to serve these Jewish people was that they would eventually reject and crucify him. He knew that he wouldn't be born to a wealthy family or even born in, into any sort of affluence Joseph was a carpenter. He knew he wouldn't be born in any special place. He was born in a manger. He wasn't even born to be served, but to serve. He would one day even wash the feet of his disciples. He would live without sin, only to bear the reproach of all who would believe in him. He would be born to save a people who would reject him. And he knew all of this, and yet he humbled himself to the place of a servant, and he came to us anyway, didn't he? Christmas is a time when we celebrate a king who comes not in pomp and circumstance and fanfare, not in military might, but in humility. I ask you then, if Christ can so humble himself in coming to us, how much more should we humble ourselves in like manner in coming to him? The second lesson in the incarnation is that the incarnation displays God's faithfulness. 
Let's read on. He says, Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. Now, what is he saying here? That Christ donned the likeness of man, that he might be a servant to the Jews, that he might show that God is trustworthy as he fulfilled the promises given to their forefathers. What promises? The ones that Michael was referring to a bit ago. The promises to bring a Messiah. The promises of a coming one who would take the sins of his people away. When Isaiah prophesied unto us, a child is born. This was the child that was born in fulfillment of that prophecy. You understand that that prophecy came hundreds of years before the babe ever laid in the manger. Not only that, but the child in the manger is the king who was promised. When God promised David that he'd have an everlasting throne, this was the king that would occupy that throne. Christ didn't come to be a servant to the circumcised because they were worthy, but to prove God's faithfulness. When God fulfills prophecy, he is displaying simultaneously his own sovereignty and his own far-reaching power in being able to make everything work together to fulfill this prophecy, but he's also displaying that he's faithful that when he makes a promise, he is both able and, get this, willing to keep it. Many people these days, we make promises, and oftentimes they're well-meaning promises that are made with every intention to keep them. But has anyone in here ever broken one promise? Guess what? You are unfaithful. Merry Christmas. You and I are not faithful people, are we? Try as we might. And it might even be through no fault of our own. You ever been stuck in traffic? You ever have just things happen at the last second that cause you to break your promises? God's never had that problem. Not once. Every promise that he's ever made is fulfilled or will be fulfilled. God proves his infallibility, his sovereignty, and his faithfulness over and over again as he fulfills the promises that he made in the scriptures. One of the most vivid examples of this is in the story of Christmas. The Jewish people who Christ came to be a servant to had long been awaiting their Messiah. They had long been awaiting God to fulfill his promises to their forefathers. And perhaps after all of these generations, there were some who began to give up hope. Some who began to think maybe God has given up on us. Maybe God didn't mean it. Or maybe we misunderstood what God said. Maybe they began to doubt that these promises would ever be fulfilled. And perhaps some were even mocked for holding fast to the promises of God. And then comes the Christmas story when God proves that he's faithful. God displayed that when he had spoken promises to their forefathers, he meant it. He displayed his undying faithfulness in keeping his word, even in the midst of the unfaithfulness of the Jewish people. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Christmas is evidence of the faithfulness of God and his trustworthiness throughout all generations. 
Now, that's all well and good, but perhaps you're thinking, wait a minute here, Paul is writing that Jesus became a servant to the Jews to fulfill promises made to the Jews. Well, where do we Gentiles fit into this picture? You ask the best questions, you know. This is the third lesson of the incarnation, is that the incarnation displays God's mercy. Christ became a servant in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. The humble birth of Jesus is the fulfillment of promises made to Jewish people. And also, Jesus came in the flesh that us lowly Gentiles who were not the people of God might give glory to God because of the mercy that he has shown us in Christ. To say it more simply, this Messiah is not the Messiah of the Jews only. He's also the Savior of the whole world. Both the Jew and the Gentile benefit immensely from the incarnation. When the angel appeared to the shepherds, what was the message that he gave? He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the Jews. No. He said, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. All the people, both Jew and Gentile alike. And this is Paul's point here in this text. And really the larger point in the book of uh, the letter to the Romans is that the gospel of great joy is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for all people. Now, as you know, I'm a firm believer in sovereign election. I hold firmly to the five biblical points of the doctrines of grace. But even still... This good news is to be, claimed, be proclaimed from the mountaintops to all people. We dare not put up any walls or roadblocks that the message of the gospel tears down. All are invited to the foot of the cross. All are told that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. All are bid come drink freely from the fountain of life. There are many who think to add to the gospel the necessity of your own good works or sacraments and other man-made religious practices. But friends, notice the word that Paul uses, that Jesus became a servant so that we'd glorify God for his mercy. Not so that we could then try really hard to still be a good person and follow this long checklist of to-do lists and I have to go pray this many prayers and be at this many things. No, so that we would glorify God for showing us mercy. Not a little bit of mercy, but lavishing His mercy upon us. Not that we'd make glorify God for making it possible if we try really hard to be saved and maybe maybe just maybe if people pray for us hard enough we'll make it into heaven no jesus came to show the mercy of god freely to all who would come to him so that god through christ could lavish it upon you pour it out upon you do you remember the barney bag Anyone at all? Barney. I know you probably didn't expect to hear this. 
The Barney bag was a magical bag. You kept reaching in and there was always stuff and there was always exactly what you needed. Well, it's like that. But the mercy of God time is that times a million infinity. That's real good math. My wife is a math teacher. Mercy means that we are not receiving what we deserve. Mercy means that we are not receiving what we deserve. Mercy is only dealt to people who deserve punishment. When a judge has mercy upon a criminal, he is giving him a lighter sentence than he deserves. But when God is merciful to sinners, he gives them none of the judgment they deserve because Christ has extinguished it all. Christ bore the punishment of us sinners. In this way, Christmas, I bet you've never thought of this, Christmas is an indictment upon all of mankind that we are all under judgment. And the only way out is if God shows us mercy through Jesus Christ. But it is simultaneously a proclamation that God is willing to show mercy to wretched, ruined sinners. We see in the incarnation the willingness of God to show mercy to the wretch because God gave us his son. Thank God for Christmas. The response to this by many is to say, I can't believe he would say something like that. It's Christmas after all. This is the message of Christmas, my friends. The right response is not to kick against this truth and resist it with all your might, but instead to cry out as the man in the synagogue did and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. At one time or another, that is the cry of every single Christian, isn't it? You must ask, though, why is it that for, for over 1,500 years of Old Testament history, God has dealt specifically with one people group, the Jews. And now, all of a sudden, he's seemingly changing his mind to include the Gentiles. How does that prove the faithfulness of God? We could ask that question. But we would be demonstrating our misunderstanding of the promises that we find in the scriptures. If you look at the last half of verse 9 through 12, Paul gives us biblical evidence that this was actually the plan all along. As it is written, therefore, I will praise you among the who? The Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O who? Gentiles. With his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you who? Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the who? The Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Paul calls to the witness stand the four witnesses. Of Psalm chapter 18, verse 49, Deuteronomy 32, 43, Psalm 117, verse 1, and Isaiah 11, verse 10. Though he surely could, surely could have pulled from more sources, but what he is showing is that all of the law and the prophets testified that this was God's plan all along. He always had in his mind one day having a great multitude before the throne of every nation 
every tribe, every people, and every language singing his praises. And this is why Paul says that part of the purpose in the incarnation was Christ coming for the Gentiles so that they would glorify God for his mercy. All of this, all of it, every last detail of this plan is to bring forth praises from both the Jew and the Gentile that we might all glorify God for displaying such marvelous mercy to us Gentiles and bringing us in to make us the people of God. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not about gifts. It's not about food. It's not about family. It's certainly not about a mythical figure named Santa or magical flying reindeer or talking snowmen. Christmas is first and foremost, it is fundamentally about the glory of God. That is the song, after all, that the angels I referred to earlier sing when they appear to the shepherds, isn't it? We sang it a bit ago. Gloria in excelsis Deo. What does that mean? Glory to God in the highest. This is the song the angels come singing on the first on that night when Jesus is born. Christ came in the likeness of sinful man to take away his sins that he might properly glorify God for displaying undeserved mercy towards him. And this was God's plan all along. This is why Christmas is so important not the holiday in and of itself per se, but the meaning behind our celebrating. Friends, let us not allow the whimsy of the season or all of the busy plans, the family gatherings to cloud out this meaning of the season. The incarnation is the moment in human history when God threw open the door to salvation and bid all people throughout all generations, come all you ruined sinners and receive mercy. The final lesson in the incarnation is that the incarnation displays that God's people have hope. He says, verse 13, I love this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This prayer of blessing that Paul gives here will be a beautiful way to end our time this evening. You see, the Gentiles, we have no lineage to point to like the Jews do. The Jewish people had the rich historical background, the law of Moses, the parting of the Red Sea, the prophets, the promises, and so on. But what did the Gentiles have? Nothing. Nothing. Listen to how dire the situation was, according to Ephesians chapter 2. He says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. In the world. Folks, it does not get any more dire than that. That is why the story of Christmas is so important because it was the moment that hope was birthed for the Gentiles. As the hymn goes, long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared 
and the soul felt its worth. I love this part. The thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Notice that Paul says that God is the God of hope. That is to say that he is both the object and the source of all hope. And that is why Paul says what he says of the Gentiles and Ephesians, because there is no hope if you are cut off from God. Many today peddle a cheap knockoff of hope, a hope that is rooted in good vibes or your own self-sufficiency or trusting in yourself or believing in yourself or trusting your gut instincts or trusting in the made-up idea of luck. You can search this whole world your whole life and you will never find hope hiding in any dark corner because God is the God of hope. He possesses it entirely. If you have not trusted in Christ and you are here this evening thinking yourself to be a good person and good enough for a holy and righteous God to allow you into his holy dwelling place where there is no sin for you to spend eternity with him, you are sadly mistaken. The scriptures say of us, who have trusted in Christ, that we were at one time without hope and separated from Christ. And if you have yet to come to Christ, my friend, that is your current state right now, Friday evening, December 24th, at Flatland Bible Church. But the beauty of Christmas is that God has sent His only Son into a world of rebellion to rescue sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Do you fancy yourself a good person? Well, guess what? You're not the person who Jesus came for. But do you know that you are a ruined rebel? Hallelujah! I have good news for you. Jesus came for you. That is the beautiful message of Christmas. Christ came into the world to save sinners. Come to the one who came to us and you can find hope this evening. Paul writes, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Do you want joy? Do you want peace? Do you want hope? It's found in believing in the God of hope. The terminology used here indicates overflowing with joy and peace. And who doesn't need joy and peace these days? Paul writes that you might be full of joy and peace in your believing. After all, has he not given us ample reason to believe in God? God has shown his faithfulness in the fulfillment of prophecy. Thinking, think of all of the ground that we've covered this evening. Think of the incarnation displaying the faithfulness of God and his mercy. What more is needed from him in order for us to believe upon this Jesus? But not just for salvation, is it? But also every day. When your life seems to be falling apart. I know some of you have been having a very difficult time lately. 
when all things seem to be caving in and you fall dangerously ill, where things aren't going your way the way that you had planned at work or friends or family have abandoned you when you're hated by all the world, in all of the situations that you might find yourself in, the way to joy and peace is to believe in the God of hope. It's that simple. Brothers and sisters, the way to find true, lasting joy is not under the Christmas tree. It's not in having more money. It's not in being popular. True, lasting joy is not found in this world. But true, lasting joy can be yours to the point of overflowing if you will simply believe in the God of hope in every situation. So then, as you unwrap the gifts under the tree, be reminded of the God who wrapped himself in flesh that he might hang from a tree. Be reminded of the mercy that God has shown us in Christ Jesus. Be reminded of the faithfulness of God as displayed in the incarnation. Be reminded that Christ set the perfect example of humility. Be reminded that because God came to a hopeless world, we can now know the God of hope. Let's stand. Brothers and sisters, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope this holiday season and beyond. I'm going to pray. We'll sing a final song together and we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you this evening for your faithfulness as displayed in the incarnation. Thank you, Lord, that we needed mercy and we can't make you give us mercy but you bestow it upon us freely through Christ. Thank you for the message of Christmas. I pray that your word would impact us and that our affections for Christ would be stirred for his glory and our good. We pray this in your name. Amen.